listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As Chris just prayed for the Lewis family missionaries that we support in Knoxville, Tennessee, I also want to direct you to uh, the Sawyers who we support in Kenya. The Baileys are about to head out in just a few short weeks and, uh, and serve alongside the Sawyers. And as they have done um, many, many years, uh, they're going to host a field day while they're there. And we give you the opportunity each time to invest in some T-shirts for the children. So if you would like to do that, you can uh, go to southpoint.org slash give. Choose the, uh, the correct drop, drop down screen. I think the tab says Kenya T-shirts 2022. Or if you're writing a check, you can drop that in the box at the top or the bottom of the stairs and just write Kenya T-shirts 2022. Um, and I know that that would be much appreciated to the Baileys, to the Sawyers, into the kingdom of God at large. Uh, at large. Uh, just as Mark preached last week, we never know what God or how God is going to use the resources that we've been entrusted with in eternity. And so if you're able, if you have some sort of means, I would implore you to, to be able to do that or to do that. So this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. And if you're able, I would love if you would stand uh, with me as we honor God's word. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, the text says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've had the, the privilege several times of, of being a guest Bible teacher at Eagles Landing Christian Academy where my daughter is, 
in kindergarten at the moment, and, uh, and one of our uh, partners in McDonough, she's a Bible teacher there, 10th and 11th grade, and so she occasionally has invited me to come and, and do some questions with a pastor at times. And every single time out of all of her classes, there's always this question in, in some shape or form that says this, can I go to heaven if I murder someone and then confess my sins right before I die? Now, first, I'm always like, I mean, is there, like, is someone thinking about that? Like, is that me? Like, is that their teacher? Uh, but second of all, uh, th- it goes, you know, they're, they're always thinking, like, can I go to heaven if I live a life that is completely focused on myself and at the very end on my deathbed and I repent of my sins, am I still going to heaven? That's the, that's the basic question. Many of you have asked that same question. Many of you may be in here today thinking, yeah, I actually don't know. What is the answer, Chris? Well, you're in luck because today is also Q&A with a pastor. And I'm going to give you the answer just like I give those students. And I, I take them to Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus gives the parable of the, of the workers in the vineyard. And essentially his answer is yes. Yes. If you repent of your sins on your deathbed, no matter the life that you have lived, If you have faith in Christ Jesus, you will absolutely spend eternity in heaven with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The answer is yes. And I also round out my answer in a particular way. Don't presume, though, that you'll know when death is coming for you. So Jesus in Matthew 20 says the answer is yes, but he also wants us to know that we don't know when death is coming for us. As we walk through the second half of Luke 16 this morning, I want you to see that this text applies to you. Because there is an enemy I am well aware of. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is an enemy this morning that as we submit ourselves before God's word, under God's word, that he desires to convince you of all the ways that this text doesn't apply to you or to convince you that you have already done enough heart evaluation in the areas of finance and eternity. Like, I already heard Pastor Mark last week talk about money. I really don't need it again. There's an enemy that would want to convince you that you do not have to submit to this particular text. I want us all to see this morning that submission to God's word in this life has eternal weight. Submission to God's word in this life has eternal weight. So the better question that I think that those high school students could be asking, and perhaps if that was also your question, is not, can I live however I want in this life and repent before I die, but rather, will I respond in submission to God's word today while there is still time? That's the better question. And so Jesus tells a parable about two men. Right away, look there in the text with me. We're in verse 19, and we can see that this first man is what? Rich. Before we go further, though, there's some things that we already know 
from previous in chapter 16. If you were with us last week, this rich man is one of these people that do not care in the least about making friends for eternity by means of his money, verse 9. In fact, this man has completely given himself over to the master that is money because Jesus said, remember, you can't serve both God and money. Verse 13, the life that this man has chosen while exalted among men, verse 15, is abominable before God. But this, doesn't, this, this guy doesn't care about those things. This guy doesn't care about what Jesus has said. Why? Because for the rich man, his life seems to work for him. It just works for him. Who knew that Jesus was already building a sketch of this man before we got to verse 19? So there, looking in the text with me, what else do we see about this rich man? Take a look at what he was clothed in. What, what kind of fabric? Purple, fine linen. Now, you only get purple in this day and time if you are royalty, because the process, apparently, was something like taking a particular uh, shellfish and crushing it and squeezing it just to get mere drops of this purple-like substance, and it would be used to dye the linen. Not everybody's going to take time to do that. Not everybody had time to do that, and certainly not everyone had the ability to pay for such a cloth. And for the linen, during that time, linen was more expensive than gold. One preacher said that this man had some very expensive underwear. This is the kind of man that we're looking at. He's, he's clothed in purple and really nice underwear. Jesus isn't making a statement, though. Get this, because it's already going off in our heads. But it's okay to be rich, right? Jesus, calm down. Hold, hold your horses. He's not saying that this man can be rich or not rich, that rich is right or wrong. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 16, a woman named Lydia, who was a dealer of purple, and she actually used her resources for the advancement of the kingdom of God. She helped see a, a church flourish because of the resources that she had, like we were exhorted to do last week. So that's what he wears. But what does this man eat? This man eats. The, or the better question is, what does he not eat? He not only eats, but the text says that he feasts, how? Sumptuously every day. Now, perhaps you go to Taco Bell regularly, okay? And you love Taco Bell. I don't know, but I hear a lot of young men just talking about their Taco Bell, okay? And, uh, and, and I also hear a lot of complaining about Taco Bell, like Taco Bell isn't as good as it used to be, okay? But here's the deal, guys. No one is talking about Taco Bell, whether good or bad, whether amazing or not as good as it used to be. Nobody is saying, I eat Taco Bell and I eat sumptuously, okay? Remember, this man is one who wears purple, he wears really nice underwear, and he doesn't eat Taco Bell. He feasts sumptuously. Now, here's what I want you to know about that word, because sumptually is also the word that the father of the prodigal son uses when the prodigal son returns home and he tells them to go kill the fattened calf and he says something to him. He says, let's celebrate 
That's the kind of food. That's the kind of way in which this man is eating every single day. The Greek word for sumptuously gives us our English word for euphoria, okay? This man never stops eating and celebrating. If he wants it, it's his. That's the kind of man that we're supposed to see. The, the beginning of verse 20 tells us one more thing. It says, and at his gate. Now, this idea of gate is supposed to give us a picture of being entered into a city or the entrance of a temple, or at the least, it's an entrance into those who have extreme wealth, the elite. Gates keep people out. We're supposed to look at this guy and think, man, he has everything. You see, this is the kind of God that the Pharisees, as Jesus is telling this story, they're thinking, this is the kind of God that I want to spend my time with because this guy, we think like this often, he can get me somewhere. He has connections. He has resources. He can take us to the places in life that we want to be. He had everything. Jesus wants us to ask, or did he? There's another man in this parable, verse 20. Look there in the text with me. And we see that he's a poor man named Lazarus. Now, don't miss this. This is the only time... In the parables that Jesus tells where a character actually has a name, and I think that that speaks to the reality of this particular parable, but it also says something else because his name means something, and it's really important to this story. It means God is my help. Now, the Pharisees hearing Jesus' parable are surely thinking, this man is not being helped by God. This man is not being blessed by God in any way, but don't be so sure. The first thing we notice is that he has been laid at the rich man's, what? Gate. Laid literally means thrown. So I don't know exactly what has happened to get this man who is unable to get here on his own thrown in front of this man's gate, but he's there and he's at the rich man's mercy and he's in front of a gate that can't be open. What else do we see? While the rich man was clothed with purple and fine linens, what do we see in verse 20 that the poor man Lazarus is clothed in? Sores. It doesn't tell us about the material that he's wearing, but it tells us something about the makeup of his body. It's, it's covered in sores. And while the rich man feasted sumptuously every day, remember what that word means, Lazarus is hoping for some scraps, the same scraps that the dogs, the feral dogs would have enjoyed to eat all the same. One commentator says that it was customary in this day for a dinner guest to eat food with their hands. And so as they were eating with their hands, they would need to do something with everything that got on them, like we use a napkin for, but they would have scraps of bread, crusts of bread at their side so that when they finished eating their food, they would wipe it off on these crusts of bread. Lazarus is sitting unable to do anything outside the man's gate, and he is begging earnestly. He's hoping that some of these napkins used dirty 
napkins could be used for his food. That's the differences that Jesus is wanting to see, the distinctions that he's wanting us to see about these two men. And Lazarus' only companions are the same impure, unclean dogs that are wanting the food that Lazarus is eating, and they're now licking that which is clothing him, his sores. What are we supposed to be thinking at this point in the story? Like, okay, Chris, you've described it enough. Jesus wants us to get the image. For one, Jesus is making an obvious distinction between the rich man and Lazarus. In fact, while Lazarus has a name, we don't get one for the rich man, do we? Why? Because he only cares about the externals. He only cares about the the way people see him, the clothes that he wears, the, the things that he eats, the parties that he has. He's only concerned with those things. Second, we're supposed to be in disbelief regarding the rich man. Like there is no way that this man could act and live in such a way, not because he's rich, but because he continues to use his wealth only on himself. Jesus never tells us that the man was moved with great compassion like he says of himself often in the Gospel of Luke. He's, the rich man is never moved with compassion to, to walk outside of his house to see the man that is laying there. He never helps the one that is in need. And later on in verse 24, we'll actually see that it's not because he doesn't know Lazarus. In fact, when he's in Hades in torment, he calls Lazarus' name out. He knows this man. He knows his name. He especially knows his name when it's time for him to need help. The rich man had been commanded to help Lazarus. We find in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7, there's tons of verses in the Old Testament. We're just going to pick some. That It says this, If one of your brothers should be become poor in any of your towns within your land, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Get this, whatever it may be. God had set his economic system up in the Old Testament for his people in a way that ensured even the poor would be taken care of. When harvesting, they were to leave the the edges of the rows so that the poor could come behind them and pick off the scraps and, and pick up those things that weren't used so that they could get the leftovers. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that his people, God's people, would be blessed to be a what? blessing. That's how God set his economy up so that his people would be a blessing to everyone, no matter their case. The rich man was commanded by God to care for Lazarus. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who we saw back in Luke 16, 14, were lovers of money. If you love God, essentially, you will care for those in need. The Pharisees, though, they wanted everyone around them to think that they were carrying out and obeying the commands of God. In fact, the rest of the culture would look and see that man with purple and fine underwear eating and celebrating all the time. They would look and say, that man is surely blessed by God. But the Pharisees in their hearts were actually always trying to do whatever they possibly could to see that they would get around every single thing that God actually commanded in his word. 
You can imagine the ways that the rich man excused himself from serving Lazarus. I may or may not have thought these same exact things before. Because after all, the rich man had worked really hard for his money, hasn't he? He certainly wouldn't want to enable the man by giving him of his own resources. Or if he helps him, perhaps he would go and tell his other buddies that were also in need, hey, that rich man, he helped me. And we don't want that, do we? We don't want his friends coming near us. And if he gives something to Lazarus, we'll know he'll certainly be back. Or you know the dogs are always licking them, and, and dogs are impure, and they're unclean. And so if I touch Lazarus, then that makes me unclean. Or Lazarus is poor because God has cursed him. Friends, we learn in Jeremiah 17, 9, it's a familiar verse to many of us, that the heart is deceitful about all things, and it's desperately sick. You and I can justify just about any command in the Bible if that is what our heart is set out to do. The Pharisees, you see, were lovers of money. So instead of obeying God's laws regarding love of brother and the poor, they found ways around it. One preacher said it this way, we will do whatever we possibly can to protect our idols. Listen, don't protect your idols all the way into hell. It's the point that Jesus is trying to get us to see. Now, don't miss this. These men, these two men, the rich man and Lazarus, they live drastically different lives. And then the text tells us that they both die. It is appointed for every man wants to die and then for judgment. And we see that they have drastically different eternities because in verse 22, Lazarus has died and the same angels that rejoiced in heaven when a sinner repents in Luke chapter 15, just a chapter before in verse 10, those same angels that were rejoicing when a sinner repented are now those same angels that are carrying Lazarus to Abraham's side, the place where saints would go before Jesus Christ died on the cross. Lazarus, who had been carried to the rich man's house, or thrown, rather, at the rich man's gate to beg, is now being carried by the heavenly host into heaven to spend all eternity with the Father who has helped him. Once alone, he's now in the company of a heavenly host. The rich man also died and was buried, but verse 23 says that he's somewhere else in Hades, in torment. Matthew 16, verse 26 makes all the more sense here. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The rich man who needed no help in the previous life is now completely dependent upon someone else. He finally has the energy after all of these years to look up and to see someone in need, but he's the one now that's in need. And he sees that Abraham is far off, and next to Abraham is the poor man Lazarus. It's not that the rich man is being thrown into hell for its wealth, it's that as 
1 John 3, verse 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Brothers and sisters, there is an individual that has been sitting out for how know, who knows long, how long. He's been sitting out at the rich man's gate, and it doesn't matter what is keeping him there. It doesn't matter what got him to the point of that kind of need. He is an image bearer of creator God, and that is what all of God's people are supposed to be alert to. Image bearer. There's an image bearer right there who's in need of my compassion. There is an image bearer who is in need of the resources that God has entrusted to me. Wait, that man who has been thrown in front of my gate, he was actually literally physically knit together in his mother's womb by my God. He's fearfully and wonderfully made. My God knows the hairs on his head. How can I not stoop in this moment to care for this man? He knows his name. The rich man knew Lazarus, but he didn't believe. If your natural bent in this life is to not be curious about the individuals in need, I think it's safe to say, as Jesus is speaking in this parable, that you should be curious as to the state of your heart. That is what Jesus wants us to explore in this passage. You see, Jesus' commands weren't a joke. Jesus' commands aren't a joke to us, brothers and sisters. There will come a time when he says to some, the words of Matthew 25, beginning in verse 41, as he did the rich man, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now let's take a break just for a moment from the story. Because everyone wants to, to look at this particular passage and parable and dissect it into a million pieces and come up with a theology or doctrine of hell. It's like, I've read the parable and uh, I know exactly what God in his infinite wisdom is communicating to me about the doctrine of hell now. But remember, this is a parable. And if you know anything about the study of God's word, one of the, the things that we are often taught is that parables typically have one point. Some of you know. And maybe they have two points. Okay? So in thinking about this, we don't need to dissect every single point to make sure that every little piece of the parable has a particular meaning. And yet... This is one of the most descriptive passages in all of, the, all of the Bible about the afterlife, particularly hell. So what do we do with that? Well, we can make some specific statements in keeping with the rest of, it, of Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And we should, because I know we have some questions about the afterlife when we look at this parable. First, while we don't hear from Lazarus anymore in the parable, we see that he is awake. And so is the rich man. Both are conscious, one comforted and the other tormented. And this flies in the face of the doctrine that some of you may be familiar with called soul sleep. 
that as soon as we leave this earth that we just go into some sort of sleep, uh, uh, a semi-state of consciousness until Jesus returns again. No, it seems, my brothers and sisters, that we are awake, fully conscious of the realities of the things that are happening with us and to us. Or especially, it flies in the face of annihilationism. That while heaven may be real, hell isn't. And while Christians, those who have trusted in, in, in Christ Jesus by faith, will go to heaven upon death, those that have never trusted in Christ will just cease to exist. Neither of those things seem anywhere incongruent with this text. Do you agree? While some are awake in heaven until the return of Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Others are in a place of eternal torment, both awaiting the resurrection on the last day when our souls will be met with our physical bodies for all eternity. Some in heaven and some in hell. Hell is a real place. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, that it is a place where the fire is not quenched. It's not a joke. You often hear people saying, yep, I'm going to hell for this one. Or I figured that I'll just spend the rest of eternity partying in hell with the best of them. If we only understood just a bit of the devastating realities that is hell wouldn't even think such a thought. Hell is not a place where Satan and his demons run around rampantly with pitchforks. No, it is a place, the scripture tells us, that was prepared for the devils and his demons, his angels, and all those that would live in rebellion towards a holy God in this life. And it is a place not where Satan has full rule and reign, a place that God has prepared it's not like earth, as some would say, that they are living hell on earth. Perhaps I've even said that before, and it's certainly not like heaven. It's not like earth in the sense that rain falls here on both the just and the unjust. There's air and there's food Food in different quantities, even as we see in this text, but food nevertheless, air, food for the righteous and the wicked. It's a common grace that no matter who you are, no, ma no matter who your father is, you experience it in the here and now, but it won't be so in hell. Common grace is not a thing there. For eternal life, there will only be experiencing the wrath of God that was rightly stored up for all those who would never trust in Christ Jesus by faith in this life. And at that point, listen, I get it. Many of us are asking the question, if that is the case, Chris, why in the world would a good and loving God create such a place? Could I propose one more better question for us this morning? And it is this. How could a good 
holy, loving, just God. Take any of us from this life as sinners and take us into the kingdom of his marvelous light where there is absolutely no sin and not compromise himself in any such way. I'll tell you. Because the reality is not one of us are worthy. Not one of us are good enough to enter that heaven where God is reigning for all time, now and forevermore. So how does that work? It works because God, in his infinite mercy, sent his one and only son, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross, taking the sin debt that was ours and exchanged it for his very own righteousness. He took that which he did not deserve, the wrath that was storing up for sinners like you and me upon himself. And if we trust in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, he applies it to our account as though we had always been perfect and will ever be perfect. And he gives it to us and says... That's yours. You can have life with me now abundantly and life eternal forever. You know the problem, though? In this story, the Pharisees are standing in front of Jesus as he's explaining this parable, and they're looking at the one who would in days go to the very cross and sacrifice himself for sinners. And they're staring at that man, and they're thinking, I love my stuff more than I love this man. And in full disclosure, I and all the brothers and sisters in this room this morning had the exact same heart posture before Christ Jesus came and radically changed us. So let us not think that we are above that because of something that we have miraculously done on our own. It's all of grace if we find ourselves in Christ Jesus. The Pharisees were decidedly protecting their idols to their graves. So Jesus finishes his story by telling us two things that the rich man asked for. Are you ready for those two things? Are you ready? First, the rich man asked for mercy. In verse 24, the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Then I love this next part. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Now, do you see the irony here? The rich man still hasn't repented of everything that he did in his life, and he wants to send the man that was laying at his gate, and he never helped, that is Lazarus, to come and help him in his time of need. When he sees Lazarus, shouldn't he fall on his knees and beg of him to have mercy on him? Shouldn't he fall before the living God and say, Father, I have sinned like Isaiah does in, uh, like, like Isaiah does in chapter 6 when he, when he has a vision in the throne room of God? But no, even while tormented by the flames, he asks to be catered to. Verse 25 Lazarus says, child, Abraham says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. Abraham says the words essentially that none of us ever want to hear from God. It's too late. Isaiah 55, 6 says, To seek the Lord while he still may be found. While mercy had run out for the rich man, God's mercy is still available today for you, friend. Today. I'm confident of that. Still available today for you because you're still alive. Hear this as a merciful warning from the living God. Hear it and receive it while there is still time. Submission to God's word, you see, has eternal weight. Second, the rich man asks for a gospel witness. Verse 27, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. For the chasm prevents the rich man from receiving any sort of relief. He's realized that. Perhaps he's come to grips with it even that quickly. At least send a gospel witness, he says to his brothers. Help my family. Send the gospel message to them. And Abraham replies to him in verse 29. They have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures just like you did, essentially, Abraham says. And they weren't obscure. It wasn't hard to get the gospel from those scriptures. Jesus, in fact, uses the same scriptures after he's resurrected from the dead to two people as he's walking. And the text tells us that he, he uses, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreting them all the things concerning himself to two disciples. Philip uses the prophet Isaiah to explain Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. Abraham tells the rich man, they have the necessary revelation. Let them listen to it. The rich man responds in verse 30. You don't understand my brothers. You don't get it. They're, you know, they kind of know the Bible. They, they kind of know it a lot. He doesn't exactly say that. You see that if you're looking at the scriptures. I'm inferring. This is his heart intention, it feels like. They know, they know the scriptures, but I tell you what, because they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets. I mean, they're just not. They're those kind of guys. But if someone would just, you know, uh, go to them from the dead, they would repent. I'm telling you, I know them. Abraham concludes with this in verse 31. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Bible from verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning of Genesis, God has been revealing God's redemptive plan in Christ Jesus. Every bit of it points to him. If you miss it in the Old Testament, a man being raised from the dead will not help them. It won't help you. In fact, Jesus, if you remember, raises another man, his friend, his own friend named Lazarus from the dead. At another point in his gospel ministry. And as soon as Lazarus is raised from the dead, guess what the Pharisees said? They were trying to find ways to kill him. If you don't see it from Moses, if you don't see it from the prophets, a dead man coming back to life is not going to do it from you. 
Because it is he who will soon die, Jesus, at their hands and will be resurrected, and yet they can't see the one in front of them. And if they can't now, his resurrection surely won't convince them. It will only enrage them. The rich man's brothers have all they need if they only will submit to it. Family, I don't, I don't want to gloss over these words when we talk about eternal destinies. It's not, it's not lost on me that many of us have friends, family members, really close people, who if we were honest with ourselves before the Lord this morning, we would say, I, I do not know if they trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins before they died. If what if, if what if Jesus says is true, then every single person who did not submit to God's word in this life by faith, trusting in the forgiveness of sins that is offered from Christ Jesus and Christ alone, they're spending eternity right now in torment. And your loved ones would want the same as the rich man wanted for his brothers. They would want you to be warned to respond to the gospel today by faith if you have not already done so. As one commentator said, the gospel is only good news if you respond in time. And if you are already a believer in Christ Jesus today, we praise the Lord for his mercy displayed in your life. This merciful warning should compel you to go out and speak the good news, the message of reconciliation, the gospel to other people, warning them of the consequences of living in their sin and never repenting and explaining to them that there is beauty and joy forevermore in Christ Jesus. And it should also cause you to evaluate your life having been changed by Christ, now freed to serve others in a way that this rich man never was to Lazarus. I want to read to you the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Hear this. You can flip there quickly if you'd like, or you can just listen. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. You see, the Pharisees standing before Jesus in this parable certainly knew the longest chapter in the Old Testament. They understood that they were to walk in the law of the Lord and keep his statutes. In fact, they set up their lives in ways to show everyone else that they were just, in fact, doing that. But ensuring that everyone else saw their external way of life, they missed the one thing that it was all pointing to. 
You see, even as we read such a beautiful text like Psalm 119, and we think about how beautiful it is to meditate all the day long on the law of God, oh, how it would be if we were to think about God's word and his commands in such a way. We must wonder who in the world is able to keep the testimonies of God perfect and do no wrong. Surely we can't think ourselves, right? That's what the Pharisees thought. We can do it. Only the God-man Christ Jesus can. And in submitting your life to him, friends, you are freed up to love his word and to live a life that is committed to his ways. You see, in this story, Jesus is the better rich man who left his throne in heaven to come and live in poverty, to take on the sins of the world, the sins that he knew nothing of, that he never committed himself and died so that anyone who would turn of their sins could have life eternal. Submitting to God's word has eternal eternal weight. There was a young man preaching a revival once, and at the end of his night of preaching, he called for a response. Maybe many of you have been in such a gathering. And the preacher, the preacher says, here's what I want you to do. You've heard the gospel message. I want you to raise your hand if you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and want to join him in heaven. A few people raised their hand. The young preacher man said, let's continue singing again. The song kept going. He finished that stanza, and he said, we're going to try this one more time. If you believe in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you want to join him in heaven throughout all eternity, raise your hands. Another portion of the room raised their hands, and he was happy as could be. But he wasn't going to stop until everyone in that whole room raised their hand and said, I want to follow Jesus with everything I have, and I want to join him right now in heaven. He kept going. And a long time passed, and this one man, thankfully there's no guy right here on the front row, this one guy on the front row never raised his hand. And so finally the preacher man realized, man, I'm just going to have to stop this. People need to go home. And so they concluded the service. Everyone left, and that young man was still sitting there, and the preacher approached him, and he said, brother, I, I, I just have to know, why in the world would you not want to go to heaven? You know what that man said? He said, oh, preacher, it's not that I don't want to go to heaven. Heaven sounds great. I hope to go there one day. I just don't want to go there now. Go ahead. Jesus is telling us in this passage, live your best life now. And without a doubt, it will be your best life. And it will end soon. That's the rich man's story. But there's a better way. The gospel is clear of that, isn't it? There's a better master. There's a better world. And it is not here, at least not forever. And it is not now. Friends, while today is still today, if you've never trusted in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, I'm not going to make you raise your hand today. I'm not going to keep everyone to find out, but I implore you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ Jesus by faith.
You see, submission to God's word in this life has eternal weight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity by your grace this morning to gather together as your people, that we've heard your word. God, I pray that by your spirit you would now and that you have been working to apply it to the hearts of, of men and women, boys and girls in this very place. I pray that we would not come away this morning thinking that in order to find ourselves in the heavenly places that we have to do certain things. But Father, that we would find ourselves in Christ realizing that we are nothing before you, a holy God. And if we are to have life and have it, li and have it eternally, then we are going to need to trust you for the forgiveness of sins that is offered in Christ and Christ alone. God, I pray that we as your people might be those who would understand the freedom that Christ Jesus has afforded us on the cross and that we would be able to live life with the resources, the skills, the talents and abilities that you've given us in freedom to see that other people would know about the good news of your gospel that we would be able to live lives in freedom, lives that aren't like the rich man who never did anything because he thought it all worked for him. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would come to the end of ourselves this morning, a people who would say, this life is not working for me in the way that I've planned it. Father, I desire with my whole heart to submit to you and your ways, for I know that they are eternal press that word into us this morning. Help us to submit to it with meekness and humility. Help us to love the brethren. Help us to see those in need in this life, knowing that we have been freed to serve in a way that would say, you're a fellow image bearer of the living God. I want to be curious about the state of your heart. I desire you to know the Lord just as I know him. God, help us now. We love you. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.